Mars Magazine podcast. My name is Adario Strange, and this time we're going to talk internet money. I have on with me uh, someone who is, I would say, probably one of the best people in the space to speak to, Wang Jun-Ian, uh, based in London, and he is a, I guess, programming director or director of programming for Coindesk. Is that right? Hey, Adario. Yes, that's right. Um, I program all the conferences that we do at Coindesk and uh, folks in the crypto space might know us primarily for the main conference we do every year in May in New York City, which is called Consensus. Consensus. Yeah, that's the um, I was talking to you before. So that's kind of the conference where all these crypto experts, blockchain experts, uh, funds, uh, VCs, investors, they all come together and one giant space where hackers can put their target on them and like like what how do you guys like is is like operational security like a big deal for you guys when you do that um not really not in terms of safeguarding our attendees funds um i mean we leave that to them mm-hmm. right so we don't uh dictate what they should or should not do uh you know uh, pres- presumably if you have a significant portion of assets in crypto you you would uh, know how to behave in a public conference setting without without exposing yourself to too much risk um, so yeah not not a huge concern and we've never really heard of, of any issues arising from the conference um, really it, it's a bigger issue things like uh, sim swapping in the US if you have have a US sim card, um, sim swapping things like that are, are, are much are much bigger um, operation security issue. Yeah, that's actually what I was thinking about, like the sim stuff. Um, I'm terrified yeah, which is of that. In, yeah, which is independent of where you might be, right? Sure, you might maybe there's some social engineering or whatever that goes on, but um, I don't think there's a, a huge significant decrease in risk if you don't attend a conference, for example. Okay, so we're not going to get too rudimentary. I mean, if you guys out there don't know what blockchain and crypto is, I suggest doing a quick Google. So we're going to kind of like skip through that. At this point, you should like if you're if you're a futurist which means you're listening to this show. You should know about internet money. But um, you know what? Actually, can you give people, like when you meet people for the first time, a civilian, let's say, what is your one or two sentence descriptor of like what it is, like the the space you work in? Um, So, you know, I started out when there was really only Bitcoin. Um, And of course, now there there are thousands and thousands of different cryptocurrencies. Um, So my explanation is very rooted in Bitcoin. And my kind of, very simple description of it is it's permissionless money. It's non-government issued. It's issued by nobody uh, in a sense, but it's it's can be owned and used by anybody. So it's permissionless. So, but I mean, how would you describe the con- the concept of blockchain to someone? Um, I like to think, and I think there was somebody great on Twitter who first put it this way, who, who I forget at the moment, but, um, you know, one of the popular ways of describing a blockchain technology, quote unquote, is uh, it's the underlying technology of Bitcoin. And I think that kind of gets it the wrong way around, right? I think a more accurate description is a blockchain is an artifact or a byproduct of a cryptocurrency transaction. So you only create a blockchain when you perform a Bitcoin transaction. Um, The blockchain only exists to record those transactions. Um, So that's kind of my slightly contrarian way of describing it. Um, blockchain technology as a category is in some sense a marketing term. It's It describes a collection of projects and approaches to the technology that people use where they try to sync up a bunch of different parties in a way that is decentralized. When you're talking about anything other than Bitcoin, we're talking about like altcoins as they're called, like... Um... I guess Monero, Ethereum. Yeah, basically. Although I would even count kind of Ethereum in the in the sun, kind of the same, put in the same bucket as Bitcoin, in the sense that you know these were very early projects. They have a lot of traction both among investors and developers. So people are building things on on these protocols. Um, but what happened in 2017 and 18 was there was this huge boom of uh, what were called initial coin offerings. 
this, right? So um, someone came up with a way on Ethereum to mint new tokens on top of Ethereum. And people thought it would be such a great idea to raise money that way. So you give me money, I mint a new token, you get the token. And then I promise that this new token I just gave you will be used in a variety of extremely useful ways. Therefore, um, implying that the token will gain in value in the future. Like so an ICO. that happened. Yes. So that, that ICO boom happened in 2017. And that's really what unleashed, you know, thousands or perhaps tens of thousands now of these new tokens into the market. Yeah. And it's kind of like the same. It reminds me of the IPO boom in the tech space, you know, years ago, like uh, in dot com 1.0. Um, before the dot-com bust and it was just like an IPO rush and there was another one and it's kind of what happened with happened with crypto but with crypto it's interesting because everything on in crypto well maybe not everything but it seems from my vantage point that a lot of things in crypto are super speculative meaning at least with the tech space you kind of have like these startup companies where they're creating a product and the only real question is okay will this lead to profits like clearly you've identified like if you reach if you've reached a certain size you've identified something that p- some people want some niche that some people are filling and you know giving you money for and that kind of thing but with crypto there seems to just it most of you know other than i guess bitcoin for store of value and ethereum for I guess what people are trying to use it for world computer stuff and, you know, kind of that that kind of thing. Other than that, it seems like mostly like pretty much every coin is just speculation on the future value. Yeah. I think that's pretty much right. A lot of the energy in the space is derived from people doing financial speculation, but you know, that's the nature of markets, I guess. Right. Um, You know, lots of people speculate on uh, the price of oil or the price of corn I mean, let's not even talk about equities, right? You can talk about the biggest markets in the world, which is commodities and 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 uh, currencies, forex, right? Um, trillions of dollars change hands every day on people speculating on those things. So, is speculation a big part of crypt- the crypto markets? Yeah, absolutely. But they're a big part of the financial markets, full stop. And just to like finish off that rudimentary explanation, and again, correct me if I get anything here wrong, but basically what we're talking about is using cryptography to exchange data, which is then, I guess, assigned value between parties, at least in terms of when people use these crypto crypto coins. But the technology itself, as you said, you kind of, you did explain in a way that's kind of reversed to me because yeah, I, I kind of, I definitely think of it more so as blockchains as these distributed ledgers uh, through which you can use, various digital assets or you know transmit digital assets is there is it like am i getting anything wrong there do you see any kind of like crack in the way i'm explaining it um i think that's basically correct um the main thing to emphasize though is that you can perform a trustless exchange of value between two parties so you don't need uh a privileged third party to then confirm it and say yes you know this is correct according to my records. Uh, what happens is the network, right? The Bitcoin network confirms it. So nobody in particular confirms is responsible for confirming the validity of those transactions. Okay, so that actually leads me to my next question, which I just want to go ahead and get deep now. Like anyone listening, if you if this is too deep for you, if you still don't know about crypto, just do some some quick research and come back, you know, and, and listen to what we're saying because I want to go deep now. So this, here's my problem. So you have all these projects talking about trustless. Uh, what is the big phrase they say? Um, uh, don't trust, verify, verify, don't trust. Um, uh, yes, that's right. Don't 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 trust, verify. Right, and so. But then you have like these other people who are kind of like I, I've seen a new trend among like within the crypto space where people are saying, well, a lot of these blockchains are actually centralized. So you're basically just using a traditional computer ledger anyway. So what's the point of using a slower, well, basically a blockchain, which is slower than a normal ledger? Like, what's the point? Like, do you have any like this is your world, man? This is like. Like what you guys at Coindesk do, this is kind of like what you depend on in terms of like the growth of this space. So like when someone brings that point of view up, like how do you respond to that? So I think if it's a competition of speed, then sure, 
the trade-off of trustlessness is that you can perform transactions more quickly. If you trust Visa to process your transaction, it's going to be a lot quicker. Um, so that argument is totally accurate. Um, but the value of trustless exchange is precisely in those situations where there is no single party that you would trust to perform that transaction. And so now you would get into kind of more, um, what's, the, what's the word, outlier type of use cases where, for example, you may be a political dissident in a particular country. Uh, you want to get funds to perform your political, political campaigns, which are illegal in that country. Um, you know, you go to any bank in that country and they say, no, we can't help you because your thing is illegal. Well, what do you do? Now there's an alternative, right? The creation and the existence of permissionless cryptocurrencies means that um, in that use case, um, that particular individual now has a way to obtain uh, value sent from anywhere in the world. And we saw a kind of quite striking illustration of this when Wikipedia, uh, Wikipedia, I'm sorry, WikiLeaks uh, was kind of... Uh, uh, unofficially financially blockaded several years ago. And the major card processing companies did not process payments, donations that went to WikiLeaks. And WikiLeaks instead got donations via Bitcoin. And if you look at, uh, I think, the WikiLeaks account over the years, they kind of crow about how much Bitcoin they received during that time. And as the value of Bitcoin relative to the dollar rose, so did WikiLeaks uh, fortunes, uh, or at least fortune. So, you know, that's an example of where it doesn't really matter, or, or, or rather, it matters more that it's trustless uh, than that it's slow. Well, here's the thing. So you're talking, I think you're mostly talking about Bitcoin. But here's the thing, like law enforcement has already demonstrated that they can, like, unless you do this thing called coin mixing, or if you use like an altcoin that is like designed around privacy first, I mean, just because you have your funds in Bitcoin, I mean, you can still be tracked down. Like law enforcement is proving that more and more every day. So like, how do you address that? Um, I guess it's like any technological development where uh, it's a bit of a cat and mouse game, right? Um, new de-anonymizing techniques are found and then more anonymizing techniques are developed and so on and so forth. Um, while law enforcement may be able to forensically track the source of funds, et cetera, et cetera, which they have done successfully in, for example, the Silk Road case where they prosecuted Ross Albrick and so on, um, using uh, forensic analysis of blockchain transactions. Um, while they may be able to do that, it is still quite difficult to actually prevent the transmission of value, right? So sure, probably at some point in the future, they can figure out who had sent donated to WikiLeaks over the years, maybe. Um, but WikiLeaks still got the money, or mm. still got the coins, right? So, yeah, I think the forensic issue is one thing. Um, but the actual trans ability to transmit is the valuable thing here. And, and just remind me, so you said you got into Bitcoin before uh, a lot of kind of like the current, I guess, massive activity around it. So like, when did you get in? How did you get in? Who told you about it? What was your first experience? Yeah, so I joined, I, I've been a journalist for a long time, and I joined uh, Coindesk back in 2013. Uh, it was founded that year. Uh, and that was the first, or maybe the second kind of big kind of price rally of Bitcoin. You know, I think it was going from $10 to $100. That was the big rally. Uh, so more and more people were paying attention to it. And you had uh, more kind of real world vendors um, popping up saying, oh, I'll accept Bitcoin. You know, I'm a burger stall and I'll accept Bitcoin payments. And that was actually my first assignment for Coindesk. I went to this burger shop or uh, stall in Shoreditch in London. Uh, burger Bear was called. And they're still around, I think. Um, and they were the first place to accept Bitcoin for burgers. And so... I got some Bitcoin from a colleague and then I paid for the burger in Bitcoin. And, and that was it. That was my first time using Bitcoin. So are you one of these people who like spent thousands of dollars on like pizza and 
you know, nights out at the club and you regret not hodling, you know, holding no, on to this those, stuff? Those people were usually people who had been mining even earlier mm. Bitcoin. So they were, this, these were people who probably got in 2012, early 2013, and so on, where it was still possible to mine a substantial, substantial amount of Bitcoin on your home computer. Um, that, that tends to be those folks who had a huge stash of them um, in the early days and who were then also correspondingly spending a lot of them to, uh, in exchange for real-world goods. So back then in London, were, was there the concept? So I use the term hodling, which is um, just crypto slang for holding on to your crypto assets in hopes that the coins will go up in value. Was the idea of not necessarily hodling specific like that term, but was the idea of holding on to coins to wait for them to go up in value in 2013 and in, in where you were at, was it already kind of like in play? Um, not really. Um, I think at the time, the dominant kind of thought was this is a new way to conduct payments that we would all be transacting using Bitcoin to pay for our everyday items. Right. Um, that was the dominant kind of uh, argument, I think, being put forth by Bitcoin people. That's what I remember. Actually, the way I first came into it was um, I was in Tokyo and I remember hearing about Bitcoin, but I just remember hearing it had something to do with gaming and maybe some possible legal stuff. And so it just didn't hit my radar. I was very busy. I, was, I wasn't in a gaming phase. And then I read the article in Wired. I think that was 2015, maybe, about the Silk Road. And as someone who is is diligently avoiding ever being put in handcuffs, when I read the, the Silk Road article in Wired, I was like, oh, OK, I guess Bitcoin isn't for me. It scared the hell out of me um, that, you know, just possibly even touching Bitcoin might put me in league with, you know, uh, illegal porn peddlers and drug dealers and all this stuff. Of course, that was ignorant on my part because that's pretty much what many people said about the early internet. And I was early on the internet. But for some reason, I don't know, I guess my first exposure to the internet was not, you know, an article about, you know, illicit use cases. And so I just took it as an experiment as it was. And so, so with crypto, I saw that article, kind of wrote it off. And then it wasn't until, I guess, maybe a year later when a friend of mine told me about Ethereum that I kind of... I said, okay, it was like kind of my third time. Like, okay, I I keep hearing about, you know, crypto and, and all these like virtual currency. Let me finally like look into this. And it was when the Ethereum thing was just getting really, just getting started or just gaining steam, really. I think that's when I turned my attention to, okay, what is blockchain? What does it mean? You know, what what is what is cryptocurrency really? And I began like speaking to kind of really intelligent business people, you know, from Wall Street that I knew in New York and, you know, finance reporters and asking them about it. And these people knew nothing. This is like 20, I'll say, I guess the beginning of 20, 2016, 2015, mm -hmm. 2016. Mm -hmm. They knew nothing about any of this. And anyway, that's when I really started educating myself about what blockchain actually meant and what, you know, what the kind of history, because there's like this whole, the thing that's fascinating to me about this is as everyone's doing their day-to-day -day life, taking, you know, whatever, following the, the story of Uber, following the story of all these various tech companies, gaming companies, uh, you know, all these different technologies, there's this entire substrata, this, this other layer of like the crypto world that has its entire, like this huge history, infighting, <laughs> trends, yes. memes, yes. Uh, characters who who rose and fell, uh, giant court cases, all this stuff that the vast majority of people out here have no idea. And this is important stuff. It's not like this is like, oh, you know, there was like some street gang in California once upon a time. No, no, no. This is like huge <laughs> world stuff. So I don't know. So once I really got into it, it there's something about um, crypto that once you begin investigating it and once you get interested in it, it becomes like a virus. And you, you become yeah. obsessed and yeah. like, you, you know what I mean? And like, and you go through different phases. You go through the mania phase. Like, oh my God, did I miss out on anything? Then you go through, I'm just my faces. Then I go through the super blockchain nerd phase where you like, you know, you need to know about every project. You need, need to know all the technical details about every project. 
And then you go through the cynical phase, I guess, where you just kind of like, you know, everything's BS. You know, what crap oh, sure. are you peddling now? <laughs> so I went <laughs> I through all the phases. I know that phase very well. Yes, I went through all the phases. And so now I'm kind of like, I, I felt like it was finally okay for me to talk about this because now I feel like I'm in it on an even keel myself and I can kind of see all this stuff. So, so okay, so let's talk about the space. So we're in a bear market uh, for crypto. Would you still call this a bear market? I mean, I think not quite. I think it started, Bitcoin started the year at... Maybe getting my numbers wrong here, but I think it was three thousand. Let me look this up quickly. And we're yeah. at about seven, eight k now. Yeah. So you know we're like two point something x up um, for the year. Um, so certainly the market is not as volatile, um, but I'm not sure it's a bear market. Like mm. the, you know the price has been plunging all year it's been rising in fact well, i think um, after so the that, after the yes. 20k high in 2017 i think everyone is now just expecting and, and now you have a uh, tim draper is he's like predicting a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar price per bitcoin like in the next <laughs> couple of years um so people are really really i mean so do you believe this there was this conspiracy theory last year that the price was being artificially held down by major players, whales, um, people on Wall Street, so so rich people could just basically stack up on cheaper Bitcoin before it boomed. Did, did you do? Did you hear this this conspiracy theory? Did you do you agree with it? Disagree with it? Yeah, I think there's a modified version of that that said um, the United States government wanted to let the air out of the Bitcoin or the cryptocurrency bubble, um, and it was somewhat more credence was given to it when Chris Giancarlo, who is the former chairman of the CFTC, the commodities regulator, uh, and they regulate Bitcoin futures, right? Um, at a speech earlier this year, after he had stepped down, he had said words to that effect. He essentially said, we allowed Bitcoin futures to, so that we could bring down the bubble. Hmm. Uh, we can let some air of the bubble because with futures, what you can start to do is you can you can short sell Bitcoin in a regulated way, right? So you can bet that the price is going to go down. Um, so yeah, there was certainly that kind of rumor going around. I don't give too much put too much stock in it because you know, like what you alluded to earlier, right? Bitcoin is a tiny, tiny part of people's consciousness. Like, is it worth you know? trying to create a massive conspiracy to manipulate the price? Maybe. But people probably have more important things to do with their time. Well, I guess uh, the way I'm thinking of it, as as I think a, a kind of believer in the conspiracy, is that I, I feel like you have a lot of wealthy people who are looking at Bitcoin as a store of value. Like, again, it, it's changed, I think, from... Because I do remember very clearly um, years ago... Uh, people using like thinking of bitcoin as currency and it's definitely changed from that no one wants to spend their bitcoin now and so you have a lot of wealthy people who seem to be looking at it as, as a store of value like a, a different kind of gold like digital gold and i don't know it, it kind of seems like that because now that since the mainstream doesn't have full awareness of it this would be the time to i guess stack up on it before the price whatever explodes which I guess leads me to my next question is, which is, um, do you think we'll ever like there seems to be this kind of utopian or not utopian, this blue sky uh, best case scenario view from people who have a lot of Bitcoin or stacking a lot of Bitcoin where they're hoping that within, I don't know, five or 10 years, Bitcoin will have spread a lot more. A lot more people will be using it as a store of value. And all of these Satoshis, Satoshi Nakamura, the guy who created um, Bitcoin, small small portions of Bitcoin are known as sats, uh, colloquially. Um, people are hoping, people who are holding a lot of Bitcoin are hoping that if they just hold on to it long enough, that the value will go up and the regular mainstream public will have to buy in at very expensive prices and thus they'll hold less. But I'm wondering now, as governments... And, you know, major organizations like BACT and others are kind of like they're in now. They understand what's happening. And, you know, Facebook with their attempt at, um, was it, was it, uh, 
was it Gemini? Not Gemini. That's the that's the exchange. Uh, Libra. Libra. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You know. By the way, Zuckerberg can't stop copying these guys. Like right. Like first, <laughs> first he takes the social network, and then he can't name his coin something. He has to come up with an astrological name. Anyway. Uh, so I'm wondering, like, if that future that people are hoping for, which is this future, you know, large value, larger value of Bitcoin won't come to pass. And instead, we'll have government coins or some sort of international coin or some sort of bank, you know, Fed or, you know, um, international bank coin that will instead be what, you know, is kind of used. Well, so um, and, and I think that narrative um so, so the work to create a digital, uh, a government-backed digital currency, uh, and usually these are called CBDCs, right? Central bank digital currencies, um, has the pace of that has increased greatly, especially since Libra came on the scene, right? So the way Libra is designed is it's very similar to uh, the IMF's um, special drawing rights, right? So the IMF had its own kind of currency, a unit of account called SDRs that they used in certain countries where they were doing financial restructuring, where your country's government can't stand behind a currency with any meaningful uh, weight, right? Um, and so the IMF would create an SDR. The SDR would be a basket of different currencies from around the world, and that's what would give it its price. So Libra is designed in that same way. So Libra comes on the scene, and you see governments around the world, particularly China, um, the government of China accelerating their efforts to introduce a central bank digital currency. So that, that, that is certainly true. Um, however, a central bank digital currency will only bear the value or hold the value of the government of, that's backing it, right? So if you get a digital yuan or renminbi, a digital um, even libra, which is pegged to a basket of fiat currencies around the world, um, if you're trying to say, if you're trying to look for a store of value that is divorced from uh, the actions of governments, then you're not going to get that from central bank digital currencies. So the store of value argument would, would remain the same, no matter whether people were transacting in cash or visa transactions or digital dollars. One other conspiracy I want you to address real quick, the, the China conspiracy, meaning increasingly there's this notion that most of the Bitcoin miners are located in China. And because of that, and because China not only, I think, they prohibit the trading of Bitcoin, there's kind of like this idea that they're trying, that they basically control Bitcoin. And even though there are miners that aren't in China, uh, the idea is that the vast majority of miners are in China. And so they basically control Bitcoin. And uh, we are at the whims of whatever you know, the president of China, you know, decides to do with it? So I think that's that's completely inaccurate. Um, so even if you had, you know, every Bitcoin mine in the world in one room and you threatened them with violence uh, unless they did something, there's not, that, there's not that much they can do, right? So by design, so Satoshi Nakamoto, the pseudonymous inventor of Bitcoin, he, she, or they uh, designed mining to be a relatively uh, kind of, uh, I think the word is not restricted, but there's, you know, so miners, all, all miners can do is they can introduce, they can discover new blocks, right? And they can, and then they package transactions into those new blocks. In return for that work, they're rewarded with a block reward. So the amazing thing about Bitcoin, I maintain, is that this is the first uh, software network we have that paid for its own development, right? And it did so through the process of mining. Um, the network rewards the miner with a block reward in the, in the, in the form of a, a certain number of Bitcoins. Um, and that is the incentive that keeps the miner wanting to find the next block and the next block and the next block. Um, but an incredible thing happened in this process, and I'm not sure Satoshi ever predicted it, is that the mining, instead of being a very diffuse group of people that people are doing on their computers at home, that was the case initially, but because people wanted Bitcoins, they added more and more computing power to increase their chances of finding a block. 
And so mining today, you have basically industrial scale mining. Um, a couple of years ago, I went to the biggest mining farm at the time. It was out in an industrial park in Inner Mongolia, which is part of China, an autonomous region of China. Um, and it was huge, right? Seven warehouses, tens of thousands of mining rigs inside, and a massive, massive electricity consumption bill, coal-fired electricity, because they had excess uh, power production in that area. So it was very, very cheap. So so that process of development of mining, uh, where now people are using specialized silicon, special chips are fabricated to perform the calculation that it's mining, which is SHA-256, that whole process was basically funded by the network itself. And I think that is really one of the most remarkable things about uh, the Bitcoin project. It is that you almost have an autonomous or um, uh, a software network with some form of its own agency. It's able to um, shape its own future, pay for its own future, pay for the continued maintenance and development of itself. And so, but but I mean, what about that says that if China, the government oh, yes. of China... Sure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, miners, miners can't do anything. So Xi Jinping could say, we want you to... Uh, there's not basically. There's just not that much they can do. They can't. They can't uh, insert false transactions because the other miners in the network would would reject them, and they would reject them purely out of a desire for profit and to get the block reward. So there's really not that much that miners can do, um, basically. And, and, and then I think if you if you zoom out a little bit and you think, well, the government of China is, has this massive conspiracy to destroy Bitcoin. It's like, look, let's say they did that. Well, then what would happen is the hash rate or the amount of computing power on the Bitcoin network would fall greatly. And then it would be far cheaper for people to find Bitcoins through mining. And immediately more people around the world would start mining. And so the system would self-correct. Um, you just There would just be no more Chinese miners. And that's <laughs> Totally okay. fine. So you touched on the topic of um, block rewards, and that leads me to the halvening. Which um, I guess what is the block reward uh, is cut in half for mining Bitcoin. Is that correct? Yeah, because Bitcoin has a limited supply of 21 million Bitcoins. Um, every four years or so, the amount of Bitcoin that a miner can is is awarded with each block is uh, uh, cut in half. And so, yeah, so now the halvening, I think, is coming up in 2020, and some people are wondering, hoping, speculating that this will drive up the value of Bitcoin dramatically. Agree? Disagree? Yeah, that's definitely a theory that people have. Um, and the idea is that because the supply, the new supply of Bitcoin is, is restricted, therefore the price of all available circulating Bitcoin should go up. So, but I mean, do you agree with that? Do you, I mean, I know you're not, again, let's just put the disclaimer out there that everyone uses. This is not financial advice. <laughs> this is for entertainment purposes only. But do you think the value, do you think the halvening will drive the value of Bitcoin up? Um, I don't know. I haven't spent that much time like thinking about that. Um, probably not because everyone knows it's coming. So, That's you what know, I was thinking. it's like, yeah, you know, you know, you know, this is coming. So why would the, why would the market suddenly react by making the price of Bitcoin go up? Um, so my guess is probably not. We're trying to wrap up, but in terms of like the ICO craze that happened back in 2017, that's died down a lot. A lot of these projects are still around, but they're quiet. Um, I'm curious, what blockchain projects out there, non-Bitcoin, what projects out there do you still find interesting? Now that all the ICO craze has died down and there's, I feel like there's more of a sober um, approach to the space, at least by some now. Like, there are there any projects out there that you find particularly interesting? Yeah, I think there's two trends um, in Ethereum that I think are super cool. One of them is this movement called DeFi or decentralized finance, um, and that's the notion that you can build a lot of the world's current financial products in a decentralized way, right? So, for example, you could have a cryptocurrency that's pegged to the value of the U.S. dollar, and that's just maintained by a company that says, okay, I have $100,000 in the bank, therefore I'm issuing 100000 of my pegged tokens, and they're, back, they're fully backed, right? You could do it in a centralized way, but um, the project known as Maker 
has done so in a decentralized way, right? So they have what you call what we call an, an algorithmic stablecoin um, that allows them to issue fully backed stablecoins uh, without, you know, having a bank account with a pile of U.S. dollars sitting in them. Um, so because they have managed to do that, now there's a proliferation of interesting projects built on top of these maker stablecoins um, that are able to replicate some of the functions of traditional finance, but in a decentralized way. For example, with the project known as Compound, you can earn interest on your crypto holdings um, in a decentralized way, right? So you're not depositing it for the bank. You're just locking it up in a smart contract that exists on the Ethereum network. So DeFi is one super interesting area. And then DAOs are the other one, right? So decentralized autonomous organizations. Um, they are you know, really useful ways for people to coordinate around a particular public good and fund and fund it and distribute those funds in a way that is decentralized. So you don't need to, for example, send money to a charity that will then work on, you know, let's say animal welfare. Uh, instead, you can send money to a smart contract that, that exists on the Ethereum network. And you may have certain voting rights in that smart contract so that we can disperse the funds in particular ways. Um, so DAOs and DeFi, I think, are the two very interesting developments happening in the cryptocurrency space now. So, and back to stable coins, like I, it seemed like in 2018, there was kind of like a, a gold rush or, or a land rush for stable coins um, from various organizations. Like everyone seems to, not everyone, a lot of people from traditional, from the traditional world of finance, you know, when, when they took a look at the entire space, it all, like they all seemed to, okay, yeah, stable coins is where we'll be able to kind of take control or, you know, gain some advantage. And so all these major VCs and organizations, you know, came together and put and they, they put together their own stable coins. So, I mean, how many stable coins can we have? I mean, where do you see this going? Yeah, um, I suspect stable coins, you'll probably end up with a handful of ones that are used um, because I think they're quite um, zero sum, right? If you have one that's doing really well in terms of representing the price of the US dollar, then you probably don't need a whole lot of the other ones. So yeah, I mean, the people. The reason why there was a gold rush for stable coins was because people, of course, realized that the volatility of cryptocurrencies made it very difficult for it to gain traction as a means of payment. Uh, and it also made it very difficult then for people to build more complex financial products on top of them. And so, if we're ever going to have traction on those use cases, you need to reduce the volatility. So that that was, you know, kind of the 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 motivation. Well, speaking of coins that allow you to gain interest, there's a scam coin, or what people are calling a scam coin, that just um, kind of came to prominence. Um, you said Compound is a project that allows you to uh, earn yeah. interest. So there's another uh, coin called Hex that is promising the same thing. It's built on top of Ethereum, and there's kind of like it, it. It was created by this colorful character, and you know he's like a YouTuber. And there seems to be I, I, what I feel like I, I watched this whole thing play out because the guy was like uh, he seemed to be like a hardcore Bitcoin. I guess what they call Bitcoin maximalist. Uh, a couple years ago, he got on and debated with Roger Veer, uh, one of the early proponents of Bitcoin. Now Roger Veer, as we all know, is over at Bitcoin Cash. Um, but this Hex project, this guy, he's had like a very kind of colorful presence on YouTube. And now a lot of like the, the prominent major, I guess, Bitcoin or crypto YouTubers and columnists are calling this guy a scam. And, you know, I, I'm looking at this and it kind of seems like there's this void. In other words, like like in 2017, you had the ICO market 2018 and there was like a frenzy around the ICO market 2018. You still had a lot of projects and people who were still trying to kind of like desperately hold on to that 2017 ICO craze. And it kind of I feel like toward the end of 2018, the general realization came over the industry and speculators and just uh, retail, you know, users that, okay, maybe the party's over and we need to calm down. And there's this void of excitement that was very high, you know, in the last couple of years. And I feel like 
this whether this I you know I can't speak to whether it's a scam or not, but whether it's a scam or not, I feel like it's capitalizing on this void of excitement. Like right now, the crypto space for your average consumer who's already invested in the space is pretty quiet. Like, do you know anything about this? And and just even if you don't want to speak specifically to that project, can you just speak to the nature of like scams in general in crypto? Like, um. What was it? Uh, BitConnect, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I haven't followed much. I've seen some of the hex stuff on Twitter. Um, you know, the other one is like OneCoin. Um, yeah, I have. I haven't really followed it. Uh, no, I no idea really what the details are. Um, but you know, scams are scams, and um, um, is that an argument for more regulation or consumer protection for people in the crypto space? Um, probably. There should be some way uh, for consumers to uh, be less likely to fall prey to scams. But, you know, I think, I, I, and I don't know if it's, I'm not sure if crypto is particularly rife with scams, right? You can, there are scams in, you know, in almost any illiquid asset market, right? There are, there are fantastic stories about scams in the fine wine world. Um, in the art collection world, right? Even the the, the recent um, discovery of the uh, painting by uh, Leonardo da Vinci, the uh, the Salvator Mundi, right? There is there are many question marks around whether that is a scam, and that's a painting that is hung in the world's most august um, um, museums and galleries. Um, so I think scams are a feature of unregulated, illiquid financial assets, whether that's crypto coins, fine wine, vintage cars, sneakers, you know, it's, it's, those are market conditions that, that scammers can exploit because of opacity, because they're unregulated and so on. Well, well because of that, like in the same way that like here, like in the States, when you have kind of like... Um, a major startup with big investors, you have to be what they call a qualified investor. I may be using the wrong term. There's a, yeah. maybe a different term for it, but you have to be listed as basically you already have to be rich <laughs> or have a lot of assets to be able to invest in cert certain projects. Yeah. And I think what, the way a lot of people look at crypto or a lot of the regular consumers look at crypto is, okay, this is a way where you can get past the regulators and actually possibly accrue wealth um, without already being wealthy, but like you said, there's there's no regulation. So because there are these, you know, there are some scams out there that you know their people's lives have been wrecked. I mean, there are people who have. I'm sure there are stories that we don't know about where someone actually took their life because of a loss in crypto. I mean, it's that serious. I mean, there there are. I, I know a lot of stories. I don't know a suicide story, but I know a lot of stories personally. And you know, as they say, that the slang in crypto, you know, you got wrecked. You know, a lot of people, you know, do get wrecked um, because they're just they're treating it almost like gambling, you know, and they're just not prepared for the losses or the risk that they're taking. So do you think because of this kind of environment, do you think reg regulation is inevitable? Um, I think those are the kinds of things that catch regulators attention. Right. So in South Korea, for example, and, and, and part of this, these problems are created by uh, the legislation or regulation of the day in that country, in that market. So South Korea, for example, lots of South Koreans got really into the ICO boom, trading all these hundreds of tokens. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is because South Korea has capital controls, right? So you can't easily move money out of Korea. Uh, the economy has not been doing that great in the last few years. So people are looking for ways to make more money. And also the finance industry is not liberalized. So there aren't that many financial assets that you can invest in to grow your money. Now, that's the environment in which these tokens appeared, and that's why they're so much more attractive. Now, if the average South Korean person could invest in, let's say, Apple stock, right, or, uh, I don't know, Berkshire Hathaway or some other blue chip equity that's outside of Korea, uh, maybe they would be less inclined to trade tokens on a random exchange. Um, so the point is, people are behaving rationally to some degree because their choices were restricted by the particular financial market that they happen to be in. And that's what cryptocurrencies allow. It's a, it's a borderless uh, financial asset. And, and that's both awesome and also not great if you're not good at dealing with volatile assets and exotic assets. 
to wrap up, I want to give you this last question that is, I guess, mostly unanswerable, but I feel like you're in one of the best positions to at least give us some, you know, general sense of what may be coming, which is the future of crypto. Like, what do you see? Like, do you like in the next, let's say, five, 10 years, do you still see us in a sea of all these different coins? Uh, do you see things kind of like coalescing into maybe three to five coins? Uh, do you like do you see kind of more federal kind of national based coins? Do you see an international coin? Um, do you see blockchain becoming like a truly utilized and harnessed technology in terms of, you know, data transfer? I mean, I, you know, people in the um, in the VR space are talking about, you know, using uh, blockchain technology to kind of be this ex this asset exchange uh, medium. So, I mean, where do you see the future in the next five to 10 years for not just blockchain, but also crypto as an asset? Um, I think and I think we're already seeing a little bit of this. You're seeing more kind of nation state involvement in the crypto markets. Um, and these tend to be kind of fringe, either very small countries, uh, countries that are, for example, dollarized, like the Marshall Islands, right? They use the U.S. dollar. They don't have, they don't have their own currency. Um, countries with U.S. sanctions like Iran and North Korea and so on. Countries with very poor management of their own currency like uh, Venezuela or, or perhaps Chile to some extent. Um, so more and more nation states are getting into this conversation about cryptocurrencies. Uh, and I think, you know, you might have a few scenarios in the future where a country decides, um, hey, we should set up uh, a state-backed Bitcoin mining company. Or perhaps we should create a Bitcoin mining zone and encourage Bitcoin miners to come. And, and you see this in places like some parts of Texas and upstate New York and so on, because they have lots of hydroelectricity, for example, uh, and not many places to that, that will want to buy that electricity. Um, so you'll see some of that. I think there's a possibility that you see, and already you're seeing this, some, some, some small countries are rolling their own coins, issuing their own coins. Um, but you might also see countries buying public chain coins like Ether or Bitcoin and keeping it in the treasury. Perhaps to hedge, um, perhaps, um, I think that's probably the, the most likely use case as a hedge uh, in, in their basket of currencies, in their portfolio of currencies, uh, um, against against the dollar, um, so I think that's the mo like it feels like that's one trend that's happening, which is nation states paying attention, um, running some experiments, and then perhaps actually operationalizing some of those things um, in the future. Do you see kind of like an international like Do you see Bitcoin becoming the de facto international coin? Are we already there? Uh, do you do you even see a time when you know kind of people just say okay bit, okay bitcoin has its had its time but now something else is around and we're going to use that like do like how strong do you see bitcoin as like a real i guess store of value in the future going in the next 10 20 years like do you really see this thing sticking around well i think it's important to zoom out right so i'm reading a great book right now by robert uh skidelsky um, called Money and Government, and it's all about the history of monetary theory. Um, and so, you know, this, is, this argument is raging for 600 years. What is money? Uh, how does money get priced? What is the government's role in influencing the supply and circulation of money? Um, so Bitcoin is just another, almost a footnote, right, in that very, very long argument between people like Adam Smith and Keynes, uh, and Hayek, and so on and so forth. Um, so I don't think Bitcoin is going to settle the, the question of what is a store of value. Uh, it will certainly, I think, be among the store of value instruments that exist in the world. Um, and I'd like to, to also run this counterfactual, right? Let's say tomorrow someone discovers a bug in the Bitcoin code that lets you print unlimited Bitcoin. Uh, what happens then to all of this activity in the industry? Well, there's so much capital and uh, human capital, financial capital, and energy has poured into it, that even unwinding all of this stuff is going to take some time. And what do we get at the end of it? We're not sure. But, but what is certain is this question of this formerly stable notion of money is this is now unstable, right? 
it's not a settled issue. Uh, uh, there are arguments coming from various directions. And so I, I think we'll, we'll continue to wrestle with this question of what is money, but in a very tangible way and where people are putting forth very robust arguments that they haven't in the last, let's say, 50 years, right, post-World War II. To speak to what you just said, yeah, there was a Bitcoin Cash developer who apparently found a, a bug in the Bitcoin code that might have allowed for double spends that could have, I guess, caused a lot of chaos. And apparently he volunteered that information and helped it um, get resolved before it became a problem. So I guess on some level, the uh, the community, even though everyone's kind of like, you know, greedily going for their own gains, the community is still somewhat of a community and um, it does self-correct to some degree, at least for now. Well, that's the other... So I was just thinking of something you had mentioned earlier, which was, you know, you kind of go down this rabbit hole and there are these meme wars and so on. That's one of the interesting things about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is that it has developed a culture around it, right? People speak in jargon and slang and refer to certain events that, that don't make sense to anyone else. Um, so I think that that that's probably a sign that... Um, um, you know, this it, it, this this is touching on a very a core question, a question that very deeply engages people, and because it has managed to develop a culture around it. So, for that reason, I think also it's a set of technologies that's that 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 has a good shot at surviving over time because because of this cultural machine that keeps people contributing to it. Wang Jun Ian, I appreciate it from CoinDesk. I appreciate the time. And uh, do you want to give out any information that maybe uh, your social media, anything like that? Sure. Yeah. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's at Jun J O N Ian I A N. Awesome. And again, you're based in the UK, right? I'm based in London, but I, I bounce around quite a bit. Yeah, you're pretty into. I think the first time you came up on my radar, you were in Singapore. Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. I was in. I think I was in Singapore. Yeah. Quite quite a few years. That was like a hundred yeah. years ago. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's like a long, long time ago. But no, dude, I, I mean, I think you, you and I both are uh, maybe I, I may be misstating this, but I feel like you and I are both fans of Monocle. Yeah, yes, yeah? yes. Used to be. Yeah. Used to be I, a big fan. Yeah, used to, it went down. Yeah, something happened to Monocle. I think the guy got too greedy and he loves the advertorials too much because now it's what I mean. Anyone you guys Monocle was this amazing magazine um that was kind of like it, it took the best of the old school journalism and design and curation and it, it kind of like held on to this kind of print dynamic even in the the digital world but i don't know it just got a little too um a little too advertisers focused and now i, I just it's not something i can read much anymore because i don't like where uh, i guess half of the stuff or 75 percent of the content seems like it's ads now right. so can't really do right, it right yeah but um, yeah, very cool when it first launched. But a shared love of the inter the international man, the Renaissance man, the cultured, uh, yeah, the Renaissance man, as uh, as it's often referred to. So anyway, I appreciate you coming. Um, and uh, just just keep us updated, man. I'll, I'll try to check in with you. Like, uh, if the, if the boom happens again, if there's like uh some sort of twenty k boom, I will definitely reach out to you and um and ask you know what the deal is. I'll, I'll try to get some more details. Amazing. Look forward to that. And this has been the Mars Magazine podcast. My name is Adario Strange. If you want to know more about what we're doing, you can go to marsmag.com and on Twitter, we are at Mars Magazine. Thanks, and we will see you in the future. <laughs>